0: Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles or to tablets or whatever you're using to read the Word of God today, and find your way to Acts chapter 28. As we move into the uh, 28th chapter, finally, some of you are uh, wondering if we ever were going to leave chapter 27, but uh, yes, we are forging ahead here and. Uh, with just the background of what where we are in this book, um, this is a book written by Luke, uh, his second book of the New Testament, and we have just completed the harrowing journey that Paul made from uh, the Caesarea, where he was held for two years in prison. Now he's on a ship, and he just uh, survived a shipwreck, uh, having made it to an island uh, south of Italy. He's trying to get to Rome. He is a prisoner. And we pick it up in chapter 28, verse 1. And when they, that is all the survivors on that ship, had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. By the way, Malta means place of refuge, interestingly enough. And when the natives or the locals showed us extraordinary kindness, And because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But when they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, sorry, but they were expecting that to happen. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say, That he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading men of the island called named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days, and it came about that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, The rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to Paul and getting cured. And they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you that there is reason to rejoice because Jesus is alive And that this is not a myth, this is not a story that we hang on to just to create some sense of good feeling. But Lord, our confidence is that the one who left heaven and became man who lived among us, died, literally died on a cross. He was buried, he was raised again, according to the scriptures on the third day. And he has now ascended to heaven and seated at your right hand. And he's coming back in glory one day. And because that's true, Lord, we have hope. Help us, we pray, to see truth and the understanding of how to interpret this world we live in and what happens in this world through the lens of your word and apply it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many of you have heard that little saying that sometimes is thrown around that says that trouble comes in threes. So, for example, you might have a flat tire on Monday. Okay, that's enough annoying things. you made you late for work. But then Tuesday, a filling in your tooth falls out. And so you visit the dentist, and next thing you know, you owe the dentist a nice hefty sum of money. And then here comes Wednesday. And Wednesday, your toddler drops your phone into the bathtub full of water. At this point, you're dreading What? Thursday. Who wants to go to Thursday at this point with all those things going on? And if you're like most people, the customary response is to try to make sense of these sufferings. You wonder to yourself, what did I do to deserve this? And it's usually followed by a time of reflection when many of us are tempted to compare our lives with the lives of other people. And so we start calculating in our heads and thinking of other people and we say, well, they have far fewer problems than I do. What's with that? And then we start thinking further and we say, they seem to be living a life that's a pain-free life. Why is that? Why is my life so painful? Why am I suffering so much? Why do I have so many problems that never seem to go away? Well, this morning we're looking here in Acts, and we finally have arrived at chapter 28. And interestingly enough, we have had a number of chapters devoted to watching unfold problem after problem for the Apostle Paul, this missionary church planter. He is a godly man, and there's no recording in the text that would indicate that he is like Jonah, you know, doing the opposite of what God wants him to do. There seems to be an implied sense that he's following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he was unjustly arrested in Jerusalem. He had many legal trials in which he set forth his case. Nothing set him free. He's still imprisoned wrongly. And this step of being wrongly imprisoned has been further complicated because he appeals to caesar to make his final case to say this is not i'm not receiving justice here this is not fair and in so doing of course he wants to go to rome so he can minister there but that's further complicating his life because the legal authorities decide to travel by ship at a time of the year when there are terrible storms on the seas and therefore he is drawn into this harrowing trip from caesarea which is to the east of the coast of mediterranean And he's trying to go to Rome in the west. And for two weeks of desperation out on the seas, tossed about by these relentless stormy waves and winds. And all of this culminated again with a shipwreck. And so Paul, along with all these other rest of these people, are all floating into shore after a harrowing, awful two weeks of suffering two tremendous trials and now what a third here all the survivors of the shipwreck arrive when it's rainy they arrive when it's windy obviously they're freezing the locals there who are so kind and thoughtful they have built a fire they've provided warmth To them, Paul gets involved. Very interesting now. Here's a man in charge, a man with great leadership skills. What does he do? He jumps in, says, here's a practical need. Let's go find some more firewood so we all can get warm. In so doing and gathering the firewood, he inadvertently is bitten by this poisonous snake. Here he's been imprisoned. He's survived a shipwreck. And now he has a poisonous snake hanging from his hand. I don't know which is worse of all those. Snakes freak me out. Poison snakes really freak me out. Maybe you're like me. It is at that point that the people of Malta size up the situation. They've looked at what's happened. They realize these people now have come in from the shipwreck, and they're thinking all oh, these people have survived a horrible scenario. And now they see this thing happening to Paul and his serious afflictions, And they say to themselves, what did this man do to deserve these tragedies, these trials? And here's one of my points in our outline. And that is this. All of us are interpreters of the events of our lives. Everyone interprets their sufferings. All of us... Try to make sense of our experiences, especially the ones that are so miserable, the ones that are so bad, the ones that are so painful. So you have a wrongful incarceration, you have a shipwreck and terrible storms at sea for two weeks, and now you have a poisonous snake bite. What gives? Why is that? And here are the residents of this island. And again, I don't like the term barbarian. All it just means is they're non-Greek speaking. That's all it means. Don't think of people wearing loincloths. These are just people of that society. They're very kind. And they're seeing that here's this man that survives a shipwreck at sea, but he's a prisoner in chains. So they know this guy's obviously, he's a troublemaker. And we know he's a troublemaker, they conclude. Why? Look at verse 4. Because this poisonous viper must say one thing and that is this they conclude that paul is a wicked man as wicked as they come he deserved to die clearly that's the conclusion they draw he must have done some really bad stuff now what have they done there they've assumed that he's a murderer And they've assumed that these things are true based on what they have learned of the facts of the story thus far. That his pain and his suffering are interpreted as some kind of judgment that Paul had coming to him. And I would just say, this is a fairly common interpretation. We see the same thing happening in one of the earliest books recorded in the Scriptures, the book of Job. Here's Job. He suffers not one, not two, but interestingly enough, three tragedies. Each in their own was awful enough to make him probably want to curl up and die. First of all, he loses his wealth, which was immense. So tremendous financial loss. He then sees a number of his children die and perish, all in one tragedy. And then he loses his health. And at that point in the book, we learn that some of the comforters, some of his friends come. Comforters should be in quotes. Uh, his friends come, and they spend time with him. They sit with him, I must say, which is quite good. For about a week, they don't say a word to him. They just sit with him. But then they start commenting in these long, lengthy observations and interpretations of what they think must have resulted, what what caused all that's happened now in his life. And they conclude one thing, Job, you must have acted in a terribly evil way. Look at what happened in your life. Now, I want you to notice in verse 6 of this passage that the initial interpretations that were made about Paul didn't last. (laughs) Matter of fact, in a short amount of time, their whole interpretation of the events of what they had just transpired with the snake hanging off of Paul's hand, eventually falling into the fire, they realized that the negative consequences that they expected to occur, that is, that apparently they've seen this before, that when a poisonous snake bites someone, they immediately begin to have all sorts of swelling up on the hand and maybe in the joints and different parts of the body. And then next thing you know, the person's down on the floor, down on the the ground, and eventually they succumb to the poison of this venom. And they die. But notice in verse 6, nothing happened to Paul. So now they've got to reinterpret what they had already had interpreted, and they come to the conclusion of this. Verse 6, I love this. They changed their minds, and they began to say that Paul was a god. Which is it? He's either a murderer. Well, no, I don't think he's a murderer. Maybe he's a superhuman who has power over death. That's better to understand who Paul is and his chains there. Let's be clear on this. All of us, every single one of us who who are image bearers of God, all of us, try to make sense of what happens to us. All of us are operating by certain assumptions. Assumptions about God, about the world, about what should be happening in our world. All of us are making interpretations about our past. We're making interpretations about our present pain, our present problems, or the problems and pain of the past. And we're trying to make sense of the disasters. We're trying to make sense of the delightful moments as well that we have in life and try to mix it together and say, how do I make sense of all this? One seems to be more than the other. So it's at this point I want to raise the question for you personally. What conclusions have you drawn based on your sufferings in your life? Which is it? Do you conclude something about yourself? Do you conclude something about God? you conclude that your hardships are so numerous that God must not really love you? You've concluded that perhaps God really doesn't care for me. If he cared for me, then I wouldn't have had all of these difficulties in my life do you conclude that your sufferings are basically unfair, that God has, has failed to fulfill what you have expected him to do and were relying on him to do for you. And that expectation was that you assume that God, in the way you add up all the elements of your life, you've assumed that God would give you a life that's basically comfortable, that's somehow, you know, at least pleasurable, something that would be predictable, that you would know what was coming next, and you, you wouldn't be caught off guard by all these things that seem to leave you disappointed. And so based on these assumptions, it's not surprising that so many people who do all these interpretations about what's going on in their life, trying to make sense of it all, they live under a dark cloud. A dark cloud of frustration, a dark cloud of disillusionment, and even some depression. So the important question I raise for all of us who are interpreters is this. How do you know if your interpretive grid, that is the means by which you're evaluating what goes on in your life and has gone on in your life, how do you know if your grid, that interpretive grid, is accurate? Is there a way that you can make sense of your sufferings that moves us beyond this subjective assumptions that we tend to operate by? That to move us beyond our subjective interpretations to something that's much more objective and, and accurate, 100% accurate? And the answer, I'm convinced, is yes. There is, there is something that we can find by carefully considering what God has revealed to us in His Word regarding the sufferings that happen in the people of God. And so I want you to put your seatbelts on because we're going to fly through several principles here regarding what Scripture teaches in His, God's interpretation, God's assessment of the sufferings that His people endure in this world. So first of all, I want to make clear that God is the most accurate interpreter of our sufferings. If you hear one thing today, you need to understand that. God is the most accurate, is the only accurate interpreter of our sufferings. You see, God has revealed his divine interpretive grid to us to help us in making sense of the difficulties, the trials, the sufferings that we undergo in this world. Everything from physical pain, which many of us live with, to loss and grief, to hopes that are dashed in tragedy. And one element of God's interpretive grid is this. Everyone experiences what we could call common suffering. Common suffering. All of us suffer because we live in a fallen world. Now, that's not surprising to some of us. Some of us know that. But just to paint the story for those who might not be so familiar with it, ever since the time of Adam and Eve, who came into this world, into a perfect world where there was no suffering, Ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the world at that time and remaining ever since then has been under a curse caused by the rebellion of the creatures of God, that is human beings like you and me, have, created, have rebelled against God, and therefore the world is under the consequences and effects of that upon the creation. And so all sorts of suffering that I go through in my life, which by the way, this past week, Preaching on suffering, no surprise to me. I'm out walking, and I'm trying to uh, go underneath this overhang thing, and I've got my hat on in the morning, so I can't really see how far it does up my head. As I move forward, I go, boom, right into this metal thing. Got this big knot on my forehead, and really knocked me down. I almost thought I had a concussion. And self-induced pain, what can I say? But we live in a, I mean, all of the sufferings that we go through in life, All the sufferings and problems you go through your life are due, at least we know this, to the fact that this world is not operating as it was originally designed. And the important passage to understand on this is Romans chapter 8. I don't know if you can find your way there, but Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 23, is a passage in which the Apostle Paul compares this fallen world order to a woman who is suffering the pangs and the the discomfort of childbirth. Interestingly enough, in the passage there, Paul notices that when a pregnant woman begins to suffer labor pains, she's obviously now beginning to have contractions, and they begin somewhat a rhythmical pattern to them, and more intense as they go on, and This mother, obviously, and I've never been through this, so please bear with me here. I'm just giving you my assessment as an observer. But she's very much longing for this labor to result in a birth sooner than later because she's yearning for this suffering to end, and she's longing to hold the baby that she's been carrying all these months. So Paul takes that analogy of this scenario that's very common in everyday life. And and let's be honest, do any of us know a single woman who's ever been through labor pains has ever said to the attending doctor in the birth and delivery room to say, listen, doctor, can you please pause this? Can we just put a pause on this labor? I want to stay right here for a while i just like to live in this reality for an you know, extended period of time. This is where I want to be. I want to make this my new normal. <laughs> no, usually she's attacking the doctor or screaming at everybody else, and understandably so. She's suffering. And she knows that this is a period of time in which the suffering is intense followed by something that will change dramatically. Will not remain the same. And so what we're living in is we're living in an era of human existence in which the world we live in is suffering labor pains. The labor pains caused by sin. And suffering is the common lot of mankind. Don't think that you are alone in your sufferings. Suffering is widespread. Everybody suffers. Everybody in this fallen world suffers. Job chapter 5, verse 7 says. Man, humans, are born for trouble as sparks fly upward. The sparks of a fire. Which way do they go? They always fly up because of the heat. So God has subjected this world to futility, according to Romans 8. And one day this world will be set free from the curse of sin. In the meantime, we must understand that groaning and suffering together is something that everyone is doing. We're all waiting for a new world order. And in the meantime of the waiting, we need to be careful that we guard against drawing a false interpretation or a false conclusion, and that is to think that there is a one-to-one equation for suffering. For suffering and sin. That we can say to someone, well, because this awful suffering is happening, well, there must be awful issues of sin in your life. Uh Uh-uh. We live in a fallen world. So we have to understand the suffering, interpret it against that background. Both good and bad people, quote-unquote, get sick, get weak, and eventually die. And so common suffering is an accurate interpretive grid to start with in trying to make sense of the widespread suffering in your life and everybody else's life. Everybody with me? Okay, that's common suffering. Let's look at another reason why God's people suffering, how we can interpret it, and that is what we would call corrective suffering. First of all, there's common suffering, then there's corrective suffering, and this is taught in Hebrews chapter 12. I hope you're familiar with that text because it's very important to understand, because the Bible teaches us that God uses suffering for his children as a loving means to correct them. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm this truth. And so we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, which is a quotation of Proverbs chapter 3. And there we read that those whom the Lord loves, he what? Doesn't say he spoils, doesn't say those that the Lord loves uh, guards them so they never have sufferings and problems and trials. No, no. It says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and some translations say chastens. We, like defiant children, often are so insistent on going our own way, aren't we? When it comes to God and his will, we tend to sort of resist God's will. We, we, and therefore, in resisting his will, we sort of veer off and we go sort of our own way and get onto the path of foolishness where we think we know better than God or think that that's the best way to go because we think that's going to make our life a lot more enjoyable. And then God at that point disciplines His children not to ruin the lives of His children, but to show us that His love has not come to an end. He disciplines to show us that I do love you. I love you so much that I want to bring you back from this path that you veered off on. I want to bring you back onto the path of wisdom. The path of true blessing where you enjoy the relationship with me and a closeness with me and following me in my ways. So God at times will use pain and problems in various forms to humble us, to prevent us from adopting selfish or, if you will, patterns of life where you get so absorbed in yourself and all you think of is just what you want to do and what you're living for, what you want to accomplish, whatever. And then, oftentimes, it's also designed to help us break away from the temptations that have sort of grabbed a hold of our hearts. Now, is God's discipline pleasant? No. The Scriptures say so. Look at that. It says in verse 11, His discipline is sorrowful. It, it it, It brings a lot of of difficulty and agony and, 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 and suffering into our lives. It's not pleasant. But, this is very important to understand in our interpretive grid, to those who have been trained by God's loving discipline, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of what? Righteousness. Did you catch us singing today earlier the song that says that our hearts tend to wander, Lord? Isn't it true that my heart and your heart, that we are prone to forget God, that we're prone to sort of go off on our own when life is easy? I'm not real close to God. We often go through seasons of prayerlessness in our lives when our problems are few. Isn't that true in general for you and for me? Speaking in general terms. But God in love will discipline His children in order to get our attention. In order to use those times of crisis, use those times of suffering, so that when we are burdened with these difficulties, we are more likely to what? Earnestly be crying out to God in prayer. We're more likely to be saying, God, I need to hang on to your promises. I need to know that you're there. And we're more likely to stay in the Word because we're desperate for hope. Look at Psalm 119, verse 67. I think I've got that in your notes with a bunch of other verses there, but... Psalm 119:67 when the psalmist is just remark- reflecting on how remarkable God's word is and wonderful way that God uses the word in his life he says before I was afflicted or you could say before I was disciplined by God in his love I went astray I went my own way I was willful I was defiant I was stubborn but now having been disciplined having been corrected i what i keep your word that's corrective suffering you see in the storms of life we are being trained and that's what i want you to remember god is trying to train our hearts so that we submit to him trained to tenaciously cling to god to tenaciously hold on to God's promises in the same way as a swimmer who gets into this river and he's got his his little tube, you know, so he's tubing down the river. Well, he disregards the warning signs that says, Don't swim here, do not come into the water. Wow, it looks nice right here, the nice current. Come on, man. And so he jumps in the water with his tube, he goes down, thinking, Oh, this is so much fun. And meanwhile, as he gets down the river, here comes the emergency workers who are screaming out to him, grab the rope, grab the rope, because if you don't, there's a waterfall 100 yards down. Now, what do you think that person's going to do if they have any, any kind of halfway reasoning going on in their head, which they've already, it's questionable, they disregarded the sign. But at that point, they what? They grab hold of that rope for dear life. Because they don't want to go over the falls. And in the same way, God uses discipline to what? Help us to hang on to Him. Hang on to His Word. Stop being so foolish to be caught up in all these other things and forgetting to remain close and walk humbly with our God. Maybe you've seen the Lord work in your life that way. If you're seeing it happen now, don't run away from Him. Run to Him. He loves you. He disciplines you in love. Thirdly, Another reason that believers suffer is what we would call constructive suffering. Constructive suffering. God also uses suffering to spur believers on to spiritual maturity. You see, suffering can be a tool in the hands of God to remove those various rough edges in our character so that over time we become more and more like Christ. Romans chapter 5 is very helpful in this. There's a number of other passages I've listed there for you. 1 Peter 1, other places. But Romans 5 says that tribulation, God can use tribulation. This is for people who have been justified now, people who have been declared right with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but even they go through tribulations, and tribulations can bring about perseverance. The keep on going, even though it's difficult character trait and perseverance can bring about proven tested character those things are not going to happen unless you go through the hard times for example no one's ever going to learn perseverance if your life is problem free if you are a person who receives what you want instantly Instant gratification. Hey, I want this. It's almost like the Amazon, you know, in the spiritual realm. Hey, God, I need this. Okay, boom, it's delivered within an hour. You know, it's like, who needs to trust God? Who needs to learn perseverance? I came across the story a while ago, I'm sure you've probably heard it, of this gardener who's out in his olive field. He's got out there and all kinds of flowers, and he comes across an amazing sight He captures and looks at and becomes mesmerized by this chrysalis that's hanging down inside of which is now a butterfly that's wiggling around in there trying to make its escape out of this little shell that it's been in for quite a while and as he looks there the gardener is waiting for this butterfly to escape so he stands there and he stands there and he thinks oh I wonder how long it's going to take and so he's thinking the thing is you can tell there's all kinds of struggle going on inside there and he's Moving around, but nothing seems to be coming out very quickly at all. So he thinks, you know, I'm going to go back and get a little tiny pair of scissors. And so he does, and he very carefully, very carefully, not to harm the butterfly, makes a cut in the chrysalis and makes it a little bit hole open. And sure enough, the process moves much quicker at that point. Here comes the butterfly escaping from this little shell it's been in. And and he knows that he says, okay, wow. I want to see this thing take off. Problem is the butterfly did not take off. And when he looks at it, he says, whoa, what is this? The wings are all crumpled and the wings are incapable of flight. And he's sort of scratching his head thinking, now what's going on with this? Come to find out, the painful process of the butterfly squeezing through this tight little opening, the bottom of that chrysalis, serves a very important and necessary function. And that is, as it goes through this narrow opening and through the painful process, it squeezes the fluid in the body of the butterfly out into the wings and therefore makes the wings more uh, stretched out and capable of flight. In a similar way, God uses the struggle of suffering to refine our faith, to reshape our character, to develop qualities in our lives that we otherwise would never gain. And suffering, oftentimes, God uses it to make us much more compassionate, much more caring for other people. Once you've gone through something, you're able to sort of understand more clearly what this person's going through. It also makes us and helps us become more aware of how prone we are to complain, to whine about difficulties. And perhaps God uses it to cause us to stop doing that as much. We realize, you know, these people over here, they're not complaining, and realize I have many blessings and it could be far worse it also can be a, a situation where God tends to make us more patient than we used to be. May I just interject a quick note here? And that is a point of application for those of us who are parents and parents, perhaps, of little kids or teenagers or young adults. I don't know what it is about our stage and where we are as a society, but you know, it's, they're what we call helicopter parents. You know, they sort of hover over their kids and they try to just solve all their problems for them. They they rarely let let them ever work through difficulties. And I can remember when we dropped off our daughter in college and the wife of the president of the college speaking to all of the parents and the students, entering students, and uh, she says, listen, moms and dads, your daughter and your son, they're going to have difficulties here. Things are going to be a little challenging for them at times. Listen to them on the phone and reassure them they're going to be okay. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to, you're going to be able to work through this. Don't become involved in solving all their problems. And then she said this word. Suffering. No, I'm sorry, not suffering. She said, struggle is a holy word. Struggle is a holy word. Struggling in life is a means by which God oftentimes is at work in us. He's teaching us. He's working on our character. He's shaping us. He's hammering, sometimes with great pain, that chisel in our character, but he's at work. So rather than concluding or assuming that God is more concerned with our comfort than he is our character, remember it's the other way around. God is more concerned about our character than he is our comfort. He's the master craftsman. He uses outward circumstances oftentimes to cultivate inward changing of our character. I'm just curious, how do you see God working in your life through the trials you've been going through? Have you seen evidence of God changing you? Refining you? It's time to trust Him that that's what He's doing. What are you learning as you suffer? That leads me to my fourth point here. And that is the fourth reason for suffering. This is just a broad category. I've used the word cosmic. I've taken my outline from uh, Pastor Boyce, from Montgomery Boyce, James uh, James Montgomery Boyce. Um, He had these four points I thought was helpful. Cosmic suffering is the fourth. Cosmic suffering. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means there are some forms of suffering that are not fully explained they're not real clear to us because we're not god we're just creatures so for example in john chapter 9 we read about a man who was born blind and the people around this young man who is hasn't seen a day in his life and the people around him are saying "Hmm, all right let's interpret this his blindness it's either because he's done something wrong or his parents did something wrong And Jesus comes on the scene, and he's about ready to heal him. But he says, listen, in John chapter 9, verse 3, he says, This man's blindness was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. What he's saying there is sort of beyond our understanding on some level. He's saying that God, in his infinite wisdom, chooses at times to advance his glory through various forms of human suffering. Now, can I fully explain that to you? No. Job is the same way. Job has no clue. When you you read what happens there in the first chapter, he is left out of the understanding of what goes on behind the scenes when his life is overtaken by immense suffering. And so you've got Satan... Uh, insisting that Job, you know, Satan before God is insisting that Job just loves and trusts God because of what God does for him and blesses him. And and, uh, and so there's all this, why, why, why? What's going on? I can't understand. I'm trying to interpret all the suffering. And at the end of the book, God never explains all of the suffering to Job extensively and fully. As a matter of fact, you have chapter after chapter of God raising questions for Job to answer and giving Job questions he cannot answer and Job is left at the end of the book with his hand over his mouth and he says, I got nothing else to say. There are some things that are beyond our grasp to understand as to why we suffer. And it's left mysterious. It's left unexplained by God. A reminder that God's ways are not our ways. So I don't have all the answers for every form of your suffering and I don't think all of us can be 100% sure all of the specifics about it. But if you're here today and you're still questioning and you're saying, I can't get past it. I can't even think of getting close to a God and thinking I want a relationship with such a God when my life has had so much suffering and pain in it. Please hear me out here. May I call you and urge you to take a moment and to say, before you draw that conclusion and push God away at arm's distance and keep Him away, would you just take a moment and say to yourself, how do you interpret the sufferings of Jesus Christ? Because here is Jesus Christ. You say, was He a murderer? Was He an evil, despicable person who committed atrocities? Clearly not. Here he is, as God, he became sinless man, and in love, he enters into this world, a world of suffering, a world that's under the curse of sin. He himself undergoes various forms of suffering. He himself experiences pain and deprivation and mistreatment by other people and injustice. And he, at that point, comes on purpose, offering himself as a spiritual a person who's undergoing spiritual pain as being separated from his Father and to bear the sins of his people and the penalty that those people deserve. And so here's Jesus enduring intense physical pain so that sinners like you and me might one day be healed and set free from the curse of sin and all this suffering. It is Jesus through his death that he put death to death. And in his resurrection, he brought about hope. He brought about power. Power to break the curse of sin. The power of sin. The penalty of sin. It is Jesus who in his suffering insisted that when he's anticipating what's going to happen at the end of his life, he says, I have to suffer. I must suffer. It's the reason I came. You see, God's plan was to provide a remedy for this fallen world. That is that God would redeem the sufferings of this world so that they could provide, He could provide for us not only our justification to be made right with God, but also to what? Become more like God, even through that suffering. I don't know if you ever read the book, but where the book by Phil Yancey called Where is God When It Hurts? In the book, he has a number of chapters. He goes through some very remarkable, sad, difficult-to-read chapters about people who have unbelievably painful forms of suffering in their life. He doesn't provide any answers to the question of where is God in all that suffering until he gets to the final chapter and he says, where is God when Jesus is suffering on that cross? And his answer is, he's right there. The God of love. At his own son suffering. How can you say God doesn't love you? How can you say God doesn't care? Because God himself has entered into the suffering so that he might give us hope and healing and meaning and the proper way of interpreting what suffering serves purposes in your life and mine. Let's pray. Before I pray, I just want to take a moment here. We're not going to sing today. So I want you to think about your own life. I want you to think about what comes on the screen in your mind when you think about the sufferings you have to endure even now or in your past. And in reviewing those sufferings, I want you to think to yourself: Is it possible and is it not true that the sufferings you've endured or are enduring fall under the category of one of the things that we've talked about today, that your sufferings are common to man or they're corrective or they're actually used by God to build in your life qualities and traits or perhaps it's cosmic and you will never really know all the reasons. The question is, are you willing to trust the Lord, the one who suffered himself for you, to rescue you, to redeem you, to refine you, and to make you his own? I'm sure that I've, my life has not come anywhere close to some of the sufferings that some of you folks have already experienced or what you're going through even now. But I assure you, there's nothing worse than being separated from God and bearing the sins of the world and all the punishment that comes with it. Jesus loves each of you. He gave Himself for you. He suffered for you. I call you today, surrender to Him, cling to Him, trust Him, Draw close to Him and find life in Him in the midst of your suffering. Father, I pray that You would help us to be better interpreters. Forgive many of us who have been living with wrong conclusions about You or other people or even about ourselves. I pray that you would help us to see more accurately from your perspective that some of the mysteries of suffering can begin to make some sense to us if we do so through the lens of faith, learning to trust you. And I pray, Father, that you would use the sufferings of Christ to humble us, to draw us to yourself, and to give us hope. Hope that will not go away. Hope that you know what you're doing. And hope that this day, that this world is not going to remain the same. It will be changed. And we'll no longer have to suffer when we're finally with you face to face. Until then, Lord, give us grace, we pray. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen.